Isn't the point of traveling to get away from it all, to feel the best you've ever felt? Then maybe you should check out Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool white sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. When your trip comes to an end, you won't need another vacation because you just had the vacation. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Hello and welcome to The Bunker Daily. I am your host, Alex Andreu. It would be clear and easy, perhaps even satisfying, for me to declare a new Cold War and say that our goal is to isolate China. Clear, easy, satisfying and wrong, because it would be a betrayal of our national interest and a willful misunderstanding of the modern world. Those are the words of Foreign Secretary James Cleverly, delivered as we record this in a keynote speech to Mansion House. My guest today is Senior Fellow at the Asia Society Policy Institute Center for China Analysis, Senior Advisor on Geopolitics to Asia Society France. He's a visiting professor and guest lecturer at illustrious institutions, too many to list, former research fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School, the Brookings Institution, and the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. And he also served as special advisor to the French defense minister. He's also the author of several books, including Quand la Chine va au marché, Après Hong Kong, and The Prescient China's Offensive in Europe. Welcome to the bunker, Philippe Lecor. Nice to be here. Uh, Philippe, I want to start with the words of, of exile artist Ai Weiwei, who said to survive, China had to open up to the West. It could not survive otherwise. Once we became part of a global competition, we had to agree to some rules. It's painful, but we had to. This was the prevailing position as recently as, I would say, even 15 years ago, an era of cautious cooperation, of suspicious codependence, of Europe hoping that through trade, China would westernize in a way. What happened to that? Well, you know, I think China has obviously... Uh, gone through uh, 30 years of, uh, of massive economic development. Uh, many countries, including in Europe, but also in the United States, in most of the industrial world, have decided to, to go for this new market, for new China, which uh, Deng Xiaoping at the time, back in the 1980s, created. He said, no matter what the color of the cat, as long as he catches the mice, things like <laughs> These were messages that uh, our capitalist world uh, found rather appealing. Um, and uh, that led to the 2001 uh, uh, warm welcome of the People's Republic of China within the WTO setup. And China was to be not just a manufacturing place, but also a market, which didn't turn out to be as promising as, as, as it was. Uh, in some cases, uh, but also a, a, a big player, 
a responsible stakeholder, as uh, Bob Zelik, the former Deputy Secretary of State of the United States, once said. Uh, and that was, if you remember, uh, the years of uh, Bill Clinton and uh, even uh, George W. Bush, these mm -hmm. presidents that saw China as a possible partner. And in Europe, uh, most, most, most of our leaders went along with that, um, that belief. Uh, that was, of course, before Xi Jinping, who has been a leader of China for uh, more than 10 years now. But most analysts uh, have been saying that the will for change started much earlier than that under leaders such as Jiang Zemin and Hu Jintao, who thought that the, the party to survive and not to follow the same path as the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, uh, they would have to rebuild the party, uh, become attractive again, be become the leading organization uh, of, of China, of course, uh, and per perhaps of, of the global south. Uh, so we know a lot of things that we, we, we are monitoring today with the uh, Chinese attitude and positioning on, on Ukraine reflects this uh, uh, ambition to become a global leader and mm -hmm. to remain in power and, to, and for the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, to remain at the core of China's nation, China's ambition, and to reflect uh, the, the birth and the rise of a new China, or the rebirth, you could say. And then we saw here in the UK a sort of, there, there was a period even as recently as all the way up to 2013, 2014, we were still signing contracts for China to build nuclear power stations here. And then suddenly there was this pivot away. China, yes, started becoming increasingly authoritarian under Xi Jinping. Hong Kong, of course, of course, plays into that. And then we have Trump in the States who signals a sort of a period of active disengagement now with China. And I am aware this is a very chicken and egg question. But which do you think came first? Did China start to flex its muscle, causing a reaction? Or did the West decide it was uncomfortable with that level of interdependence? So, you know, I spent many years uh, on both sides of the Atlantic and I've been sort of uh, watching China for uh, over three decades now. And I was in the United States when uh, uh, Donald Trump got elected and traveling occasionally to China uh, about four times a year. And I remember very clearly uh, a trip in January 2017. That was, uh, you know, half a year after the Brexit referendum uh, in the UK and, uh, and a couple of months after Trump's election as the new US president. And I was welcomed by Chinese colleagues with a big smile on their face saying, oh, what are you going to do now in the West? You now have a United Kingdom uh, uh, sailing away from the EU and you have a United States, presumably the leader of the West, which is now run by a man who, who puts America first. So this is going to be difficult for you. And you're basically feeding into our scenario of, of China taking over or perhaps, uh, you know, becoming an alternative to the international order that the United States and its allies have put together after World War II. So for, for a medium country, for a medium economy on its own, you really have to be 
very close to one of those big blocks, right? You have to have a very close relationship with either the states or with the EU or with China. Is that what, what you're saying? Well, I've always believed in uh, in strong alliances, and I think that's one of the things that one of the good things that the Biden administration has been doing is reaching out to allies, whether in the West or even in Southeast Asia or in South Asia or in the Pacific. But let me go back briefly to the UK question, the, the David Cameron period, perhaps, and, and the, the golden era, as one called it at the time. It is true that uh, the Prime Minister. Uh, George Osborne, the former chancellor at the time, were full of praise for the Chinese market and seemed to be completely enamored with China. You remember George Osborne uh, visiting Xinjiang and uh, you know making comments uh, in Xinjiang about this fantastic opportunity the China market w- would be for uh, British companies. The Belt and Road Initiative, the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, which the UK was the first Western country to recognize and to join as a founding member. I remember all this. I was in, in, in Washington, but at the time it was very much unwelcome by the U.S. administration. That was the, the Obama administration at the time. The Belt and Road Initiative was seen as an alternative also to the World Bank, the IMF, these organizations that, that were set up uh, after uh, the, the, at the end of the World War II. And therefore, the Obama administration had a very strong reaction. And I also remember very clearly that uh, the Chinese leader at the time made a statement about the UK and said he would rather have a a strong UK within a strong EU uh, rather than a a sort of autonomous uh, Britain. And that that was very rare for a Chinese leader to say something like this. Now, and he's probably not going to get involved anymore in, in, in other countries since he was disappointed by the, <laughs> probably <laughs> by the referendum results. Now, as you know, the Chinese, especially Chinese banks were heavily uh, invested in, in the yes. city of London. And they all opened branches and they had invested in real estate. At one point, I mean, the Chinese investment in the UK reached uh, about 50 billion pounds. Um, and, and still is, because I think that the, the, the Chinese have invested not just in this nuclear plant, plant you, you referred to, Hinkley Point, but also you have the Huawei's of this world, you had real estate. Um, now, where they did not invest it were the infrastructures that were needed <laughs> for the UK, <laughs> train lines all the way to Newcastle uh, and, and things like that. Uh, that was never actually Concluded. I, I think that's a cultural clash because I would imagine that the Chinese assumed that the state in the UK would make that investment in the roads and the railway. Well, I'm not sure about that. I mean, I think they would they would be delighted to bring their construction companies into the UK or into anywhere. The problem is, you know, I I personally don't think we we need Chinese constru- construction companies in the West. This was the idea of the European Union. And certainly when you have neighbors, you interact with them. And for example, Eastern Europe, uh, Poland, for one, uh, would have suppliers for this kind of work. And let me remind you that, for example, uh, high-speed rail at the time, I was I was living in China back in the 90s, both uh, Siemens of Germany and Alstom of France were asked to compete 
for the Shanghai Beijing mm. uh, uh, high speed train. So, you know, the China market is the most difficult you can think of, especially in, in the field of construction, infrastructures, uh, just because they have so many of these companies and workers and engineers, which brings me back really to, to George Osborne, who naively thought uh, that China was going to, to call in engineering companies from the UK to help build the Belt and Road Initiative. At the time, every single European country thought they were going to be the final destination of the Silk Roads. Well, in fact, none of them was. And the reality is that the Silk Roads have no destinations or all destinations possible. This is basically China's strategy to build new connections with the rest of the world. And I don't believe uh, Chinese investments uh, to the UK or to the EU are going to increase very much in the next few years. I think, you know, this is a, a dream perhaps for European leaders. Uh, the current situation, which is similar to a Cold War, you could say, uh, is not going to help um, uh, create financial links between China and the West. It will help China to become a strong power, possibly a leader of developing countries. Some of them are in Asia. Many of them are also in Africa. In Latin America, President Lula was in Beijing just a few days yeah. ago. Um, this is now the situation we're facing. And I think the the West would be much better at uh, talking to each other rather than, than being divided. We have the current crisis after the full Ukraine invasion and China's unlimited friendship to Russia, and still European countries are actively trying to keep communication lines open, to keep trade routes open. What is the basic tension there? Why are they still trying to engage with China in that way? Can you be an economic partner to both sides of a conflict while being a military partner to one side of a conflict, basically? So in 2019, um, the European Union came up with a, a triptych, uh, calling China partner, a competitor, and a systemic rival. Now, talking about Europeans, as you know, you have two countries in the EU that perhaps dominate economically and politically. Germany, on one hand, France, on the other hand. And you recently wrote that the reasons for trying to engage with uh, China and their approach is slightly different. And, and it was your view that they should perhaps be communicating with each other a bit better and coordinating with each other a bit better. Well, absolutely. I mean, what happened in 2019, which was a, a critical year for the uh, China-Europe uh, relationship, President Macron hosted Xi Jinping in Paris, alongside the former German Chancellor Angela Merkel. And, and that sort of led to a joint approach to uh, Beijing. And I would have hoped that uh, Merkel's successor, Olaf Scholz, would travel with Macron together to Beijing to deliver that, that strong message mm. of that unified voice. Now, instead of that, <laughs> Shows got elected, um, is now running this coalition of three, of three parties, 
including the Greens that have a very different approach on China. They're much more, you know, pro-human rights. And, you know, so Scholz decided to go on his own uh, back in November, November 2022. And he only stayed 11 hours, which is really very short for the, for the, for the head of government <laughs> of, yeah, yeah. of Europe's largest economy. And that was still, you know, uh, around the, the time of the, the COVID-19, you know, the, 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 the zero COVID. I mean, Olaf Scholz visited China just before these measures were lifted and came with a group of business people, CEOs, Volkswagen, Siemens, BMW, um, BSF, all these big names in chemicals, car companies, car manufacturings, and all of this. Now, these companies, they depend on the Chinese market. Remember, Germany was dependent on two large autocratic countries. Yes. <laughs> Russia for its energy and mm. China for its consumer market. Now, suddenly... The war in Ukraine took place. Uh, so they had to cut the links with, uh, you know, energy supplies from Russia. That was a big shock for Germany. On the other hand, you have France, completely different situation. France invests a lot in defense. And, and the French government, of course, has limited interest in China. But Emmanuel Macron wants to uh, try to end the war in Ukraine. Now, of course, it ha he has failed uh, so far. Uh, he has attempted to speak to Putin, failed. He has attempted to speak to Xi, failed. Because no. Macron came came in for a huge amount of criticism for that visit to Beijing, right? It yeah. seemed to come from everywhere. So looking forward, do you think there is a third way, as it were, uh, like yeah. Macron believes? So, so I think um, uh, Macron was uh, uh, duly criticized for what he said in his interview on the plane <laughs> when he said that Taiwan would possibly not be uh, Europe's war, while, uh, of course, Ukraine is a priority. Will China help? Well, it looks unlikely when you hear the words of the Chinese ambassador to France, Lu Xiaoye, who uh, apparently had doubts about the sovereignty of Ukraine and whether it was a blunder or not, we are not quite sure, but he has been contradicted by the Chinese uh, Ministry of Foreign Affairs spokesperson. I do believe that Macron was not entirely wrong in his approach to China. First, because he visited China with the president of the European Commission. So I think they tried to play this good cop, bad, bad cop approach. Somebody is going to state the facts about the systemic rivalry of the People's Republic of China, the fact that we need to, to build more defense mechanisms against China. At the same time, uh, I'm with you when you say uh, we should not completely close the door to China because we're going to have to live with China. Mm -hmm. And I think that was Macron's idea when he tried to engage Xi Jinping on the Ukraine question particularly. Yeah. Um, Philippe, to finish, I want to ask you something that I have asked every China expert I have interviewed for some years now with varying answers. Um, in 2012 in Cuba, uh, a young Xi said, uh, some foreigners with full bellies and nothing better to do engage in finger-pointing at us. And he asserted that China does not want to mess around with your country. 
does see China want to dominate the international community or does it want to belong to it? What do you think is China's desire at the core? I think China's desire is to be recognized as a, uh, as they say, 4,000-year uh, history uh, uh, nation, a, uh, a civilization rather than just a country, an empire, maybe, if it's not, even though there's no more emperor. And this is the first condition they would require for them to play a role in the international community. Uh, the other thing is they do not want, and I think she clearly said that when he met uh, Putin in Moscow just a few weeks ago, that, you know, both of us are now monitoring and watching this redefinition of the international uh, order that mm -hmm. nobody has seen in a in hundred years. This reflects a China that wants to dominate. And in fact, I think at the beginning of our conversation, I refer to uh, my visit to Beijing in, in 2017, a few months after Brexit and a, a couple of months after, after Trump. I think China was uh, uh, vastly encouraged by these two things. Meanwhile, China is building a community of allies, but certainly a bunch of uh, autocratic states that are becoming dependent on China. That's certainly the case with Russia, which doesn't have many friends anymore. And that's the case with North Korea, Iran, uh, Myanmar, <laughs> some countries in Africa, perhaps Turkey, who knows? Uh, yeah. That's becoming a fairly long list. Now, the only response to this is a, a unified democratic community, let's call it this way, and I think, again, this has been a fairly uh, fair approach on the part of the Biden administration. But I don't know whether the Biden administration will be given another uh, four-year term. And I don't know who is going to be in power in Europe in the next few years. I certainly think, you know, we are lacking leadership badly. There are few world leaders that can stand to China. And this is helping to create a, a community of defiant nations. And we have to come up with alternatives. They are filling a vacuum that we create by our division, basically. Philippe Lecourt, thank you so much for such a, such a, a stimulating conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Remember, there's a new bunker pretty much every day, so if you like our work, you can and should support our work on the funding platform Patreon. For as little as £3 a month, just search Bunker Podcast Patreon. I leave you with Farid Zakaria's words, Politics and power is a realm of relative influence, so as China expands, whose role is diminishing, of course, the established power, the United States, it's not possible for two countries to be the leading dominant political power at the same time. I hope he is wrong and that there is balance to be found that means this does not turn into a zero-sum game. This is Alexandreou in the bunker saying over and out. your favourite history nerds are back. Yes, we at We Are History have been trawling the history shelves of our local bookshops. Well, 
I have, John. You mostly went around finding your books and moving them to the front of the displays. If I can find them, it's a bonus. We are ready to tell you all about what we've learned, from the revolting French to some revolting women. Via some Brits abroad and a foul-mouthed Irishman. So, download We Are History. Our laughable attempt at a silly history podcast. With me, John O'Farrell. And me, Angela Barnes. Wherever you get your podcasts. The Bunker was presented by Alex Andrade. Lead producer is Jacob Jarvis. Group editor, Andrew Harrison. Audio production by me, Robin Lieber. And the theme tune is by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Mm-hmm.